This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't come here expecting to discuss. I'm very happy to be here today with Nato Thompson. He's the artistic director of Creative Time, which commissions and presents ambitious public art projects with thousands of artists throughout New York City, across the country, around the world, and now even in outer space. They did Waiting for Godot in hard-hit New Orleans neighborhoods after the flood that I talked about with actor Wendell Pierce on this show. Um, Nato's new book is called Culture as Weapon, The Art of Influence in Everyday Life. Welcome to Think Again, Nato. Good to be here. So, yeah, let's start by like what you mean by the weaponization of art and culture. You basically, you begin the book by saying that art is now ubiquitous mm -hmm. and uh, like it's everywhere, we, you know, in every aspect of our lives, um, but it's been weaponized as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, I mean, it's funny because often when you say the word art, we still kind of, in our minds, we think of paintings in the museums, or you think of a sculpture, right. maybe you think of a video installation. Right. And I think classically that is what we consider the visual arts. But if you just kind of open your mind to the kind of tools that artists have been using, that is to say visual representations or deploying, evoking materials to get us to feel a certain way, if right. framed in that regard, you can understand that that could apply to advertising, it can apply to the internet, it can apply to Instagram. And so I would just say in short that without thinking of art as that which is in a museum, right. the kind of tools that artists were using at the early 20th century and mid 18th century are now entirely all around us at all times. Yeah, and you know, like when I started reading the book, like I thought I was getting into something like what I remembered of Foucault, mm -hmm. which was sort of a, you know, sense of just the ubiquity of power and and the kind of constant rebalancing of forms of power and how they how perniciously they disappear from one place and appear somewhere else. I think that is in in there, but you also seem to want to avoid like an overt kind of I don't know blunt critique of it. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways too just to kind of put it in a certain kind of political context. Certain other thinkers like, okay, so a current writer, Thomas Frank, wrote a book called What's the Matter with Kansas? And in that book, he was trying to understand why people of Kansas voted for Republicans when the Republican Party had basically teamed up with agribusiness and put most of the farmers out of work, and yet the state itself became red. Okay. Right? So that was his kind of question. But then even Marx, in a chapter he wrote called The 18th Brumaire, wrestled with the question of like, he basically predicted that the you know, people would wake up to the fact that the bosses were destroying them and they would overthrow them, produce a communist revolution, right? Right. In the Communist Manifesto. But then instead of that, in France, in 1848, they actually voted in a tyrant, Bonaparte. Right. And so he was kind of wondering in this chapter, like, why would the people 
who are being destroyed by these people, yeah. vote them in. Right. So uh, just to say there's a long history of wondering why is it yeah. that people don't vote with their economic needs. In all circumstances, people tended to say, well, it's because people, they almost went back and they say, well, people really don't know their economic needs. But I'm in this book trying to just be like, let's really appreciate the problem more significantly. Right. Rather than me pointing fingers in this book, I kind of wanted to just outline the ways that culture is being used in a bunch of different areas yeah. so that we get a texture for it. And I don't want to point at good guys and bad guys just yet. But more lay the groundwork for it. So that's the next book, pointing at the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, we're in the era of Trump, so it's like, you know, we got Darth Vader breathing down our throat. Yeah, what do we really have to point at? Yeah, it's sort of there in, in you know, bold relief. But, um, but no, I mean, there was a quote in your, in, in, again, in the introduction, I think, that, that speaks to that, which I thought was really powerful. We interpret the world by way of our personal needs and desires, and so are vulnerable to larger powers who know how to speak to those needs. Oh, exactly. Yeah. That, so, I mean, like, Napoleon either intimidated the people or spoke in a language that they could understand, that somehow made them feel valued or valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I would also say, you know, I've also come to learn, it's a similar direction, but I think we point at racists as though racists over there, but I think fundamentally humans are racist. And I don't mean that even in a judgmental way, right. although certainly it's, got, it's highly problematic, but what I mean to say is we really tribe up, and we yeah, are yeah. fearful, and it's historically so evident that we behave in these ways. Right. So, you know, rather than thinking of racism, I mean, this is like, <laughs> how to say it? Rather than thinking we aren't racist or the racists are over there, right. I think the question is what do we do with our racism? Would that mean that trying to undo it is a pointless strategy or that... Well, that's where I get in tricky territory because I don't know the answer. I mean, clearly it's something we must combat, but I don't think it's something we can just do on an, on an intellectual level. Right. You know, for example, as much as right now everyone's patting themselves on the back that we live in cities and like it's those crazy hicks out in the suburbs, Cities are totally racist. Uh -huh. We have the most segregated schools, <laughs> yeah. right? We're the, we're the, you know, Black Lives Matter is predominantly an urban-driven movement yeah. because the violence is happening in cities. So, you know, as much as we're all patting ourselves on the back for the progressive urban environments that we're in, who's kidding who? Yeah, yeah. Well, in cities, I think <laughs> we just get really good at isolating ourselves from one another. Like, we're around... We're surrounded by people who are different from us, but we just develop kind of strong internal technologies for not getting too caught up. Yeah, yeah, in, and I think too, like we confuse the fact that we like are on the subway together with progressives. Right, right, right. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm inviting you to Thanksgiving. Yeah, right? you'll yeah. fight. You know, you'll fight for the right for refugees to come in the country, which I applaud. But you won't send your kid to the public school right. because you're determined to get him in the private school down the street. So that brings me kind of to. <laughs> You are the artistic director of Creative Time, which is an active arts organization doing multimedia public performances of, of art. And this is a very stupid question I'm going to ask. What is art for? How do you decide what art is for? Mm -hmm. To what extent do you feel compelled to make and support art that acts in resistance to the kind of other ways that art is being weaponized? against us versus like what they used to call art for art's sake. Yeah. Yeah. Can, well, we, can we get into all that? Well, there's, you know, 
Art is a very complex thing and it does many things yeah. simultaneously. So I'll give some simple answers to that really good question. You know, certainly one of the things that art offers, and I don't want to conflate that all art does the same things. It's such a big field. But, you know, you take someone like William Burroughs, which I go into in the book to some degree, because poetically enough, William Burroughs' uncle was a guy named Ivy Lee, who's one of the foremost important public relations people and worked for the Rockefellers and uh, actually was a strike breaker and really defended the big industries against the working man. Okay. And in fact, Howard Zinn referred to him as Poison Ivy, whatever. But it's interesting because William Burroughs was um, a big, he wasn't a theorist, he was a poet, writer, guy, bohemian, who understood that media was about control. Right. And he even referred to it as control. But he would use, with his uh, artistic partner, Brian Geisen, he would use the cut-up method, where they would usually literally take up texts and cut them up and rearrange them. Okay. And that was his way of basically getting out of control. Like, right. in order to, like, to disrupt systems that were trying to get you to go from A to B, right. he'd be like, what if we go from A to Z to Y to X to F, you know, and just see what happens. And some people would think that's absurdist right. or, like, irrational, but it was literally a mechanism to disrupt the utility out there of meaning making. And I think art right. often can be a very disruptive force that it's unclear what it wants rather than something that's going, hey, you know, I want you to do this or I want you to right. feel this. Right. And sometimes I think that's what makes art hard for people is because you look at it and you think, what do you want from me? <laughs> right, 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 right. And sometimes I'll admittedly say some art, you know, just doesn't work because you don't, you're not even interested, that's a problem. But there's art that actually can touch you, but still be very unclear what the artist wants. And I think that's a very powerful force in a society where I think a lot of culture wants something from you a lot. Right. You know, And to go to your thing about artists, they're so very different because of course, some art I think does a very different thing, which is allows us to relate to each other in different ways. Right. Or if you talk about identity politics, sometimes it can, be a way for someone who feels very overwhelmed by a mainstream identity sure. to a certain a certain kind of identity. So there's a lot of things that art can do. It's it's a big, big ball of tricks out there. Yeah, yeah. I guess the question I want to ask is about like sort of. So I mean, you've got the you've got the more kind of I don't know overtly sinister looking uses of yeah. power, government, uh, PR to manipulate yeah. people into supporting wars, you know, or or, you know, just kind of really ham-fisted corporate manipulation to get you to buy stuff that's not good for you or whatever. Yep. But, but then there's these sort of soft weaponizations that you talk about a bit in the book. Mm -hmm. um, Starbucks, you yep. know, uh, companies that are friendly. Lyft, for example, mm -hmm. which has now donated a million dollars to the ACLU in the wake of uh, the quote-unquote Muslim ban. Yep. So it, it feels like that once too, and in some cases it, it sort of does defang the big scary corporations, but it also creates new problems. I ways. agree with you completely, yeah. and I can't answer it entirely. Yeah. Certainly one of the things I've tried to stay away from is, um, I mean, it's so funny, I just got a critique on the book that I didn't provide a way out, but I don't know if um, that was the job of the book per se, you right. know? And I say that because I just want to really appreciate what we're dealing with for a second. Right. And I say that because it's a good, I really like your phrase, the soft versions of these entanglements, because it isn't just, 
You know, it isn't just Mac pretending that they're the underdog. And it isn't just, frankly, Starbucks and gentrifying spaces. You know, it's, it's in, in many ways, it's the way we communicate today. Right. We're all sort of little advertisers. And we all kind of, because we've grown up with it, understand the power of communicating with emotions, whether it is an activist movement, whether, you know, Occupy Wall Street, you know, gained a lot of traction out of the videos of cops beating up kids and using hyperbole and using viral media messaging and sometimes, it, you know, it blowing facts out of proportion. And we, right. you know, we all do it because, of course, we understand that the means, the ends justify the means, if you will, so and so. Right. But we, there is a certain kind of ubiquity around these tool sets that does provide for a very complicated landscape. And when you were talking about, for example, Lyft providing money to the ACLU, you know, I mean, that's a, a whole genre called cause-related marketing, which makes it very gray. Because if you really want to expand it even further, I work for a nonprofit, right? Right. A nonprofit gets money from predominantly like the one percenters who are like real estate developers and bankers. We all know the formula. Right. And it's not all that unrelated to Lyft giving a million dollars to the ACLU. Right. And then you think about the nonprofit industrial complex or philanthropies. I don't want to go big and big, but I was just trying to appreciate this complex landscape of these soft incursions yeah. where the where people are all playing into the how we feel about things constantly. Yeah, and and yeah, and like nonprofits, yeah, and in, in that sense sort of and charity and so forth function as a kind of PR function for corporations to make them appear human, which may or may not be true to varying degrees depending on who the CEO is and what motivates them fundamentally, you know? I mean, I'm with, exactly, and too, and I wouldn't be one to say like, don't take any money because right. I'm also like, I need a job. Right. I'm not crazy. <laughs> right, right. But I guess what I would ask or, you know, is like, does that fundamentally like, so I mean, basically, we're we're in a situation where I mean, when, you know, when I was growing up, I'm 44 years old. When I was growing, I'm 44 years old. Hey, man, there we go. All right. Um, so before we were like we were pretty saturated, but not nothing like this. And you know, there was a pretty strong idea of what selling out was yeah. and wasn't sure. back then. And certainly in the like DIY music communities and like I grew up in DC, so I'm thinking of like Discord Records and Ian McKay and you know, Fugazi and like, you know, there were queer ideas of like what was selling out and what wasn't. And then all of that started to look blurry. Are we at a point from the standpoint of an artist, like is all art inevitably or most of it saturated or intermixed or somehow complicit in this kind of octopoid power dynamic that we're talking about, like where, I don't know, I, 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 that's a complex Well, one. I certainly, you know, sympathize and also clearly do have similar cultural references to you. <laughs> and the conversation around selling out, honestly, may be one of the important precursors to the book I've written, because I was a big fan of punk rock and right. Discord records, and also wrestled with aesthetics relationship to power, in so much as I mean punk rock you know, I lived in the Bay Area and we had a club called Gilman Street, which basically the rule was as long as you weren't on a corporate label, you could play there. So when Green Day went corporate, they were no longer allowed to play at Gilman Street. Okay. And everyone turned on them. Gotcha. And the music stayed the same, so that bubblegum pop crap. But even though the music stayed the same, the relationship to money had changed. I think there was a real understanding that art relationships to money was an important part of the art itself. 
And that value is still deeply with me, and I don't think it's gone. You know, certainly you would say that under the Obama administration and its relationship to neoliberalism, which is to say he was kind of the feel-good, culturally liberal, capitalist president. Right. People wrestled with that a lot. And sure. in Occupy Wall Street, that was a huge question. You know, and, and it, it, it really tears people apart because they feel really tortured because there's really, I mean, it's hard to keep raise a family without getting your hands dirty somewhere in America. At the same time, I think there is a real struggle to find an ethical relationship to the world around us. So whereas I do think it's a different conversation when it comes to art, the basic question was how do we act ethically on this planet? And that conversation I don't think is gone at all. Right. And it's really important. And you know, I don't think you'd have Bernie Sanders as a candidate if people didn't care like that. You know, I just think that there's Sure. And also, too, I just know, and not to be like generational, but the younger generation is a more screwed by the financial situation we are in. Sure. And also, strangely, more utopian than even my cynical Kurt Cobain generation. That's right. <laughs> so. That's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And again, like we won't go too far down this road, lest yeah. we sound like ill-informed fuddy-duddies, yes, I suppose. Uh, but but fine. they but they do seem there is like. L less discomfort with the kind of interpenetration of corporate or Silicon Valley money yeah. with culture. Like that's Yeah, I think so too. And also it's it's just different too, because like the music industry also entirely collapsed. Disappeared, yeah. So it's just you know, my growing up was very much about music. And I think the music is music is still very huge, but it's a very different terrain. Yeah. of the last 20 years, profoundly so. And its destruction is also made for a lot of underground scenes and possibilities that sure. were never before possible. Sure, and so the takeaway has to be that like, it's just not as simple, it's not as clear cut as it looked back then. I mean, no. art still exists, it's still being made, and those questions of meaning and you know, ethics still obtain even though we're yeah, and in also too, I mean, slang, like, I would say too, most people, I mean, just to say on a very simple level. Yeah, yeah. Most artists are broke. Yeah. Most musicians are broke. Like most art makers are broke. Right. And I just say that because many of them would say, I'd love to have a complex relationship to capitalism. I have no relationship to it. Right. Like I'm just broke. Like right, I don't right, make right, any right, money right. off my music. Yeah, I yeah. don't make any money off my art. Yeah, yeah. And so for a lot of people that are broke, you know, it's clear what the relationship is, which is they, I'm uh, getting screwed. Got nothing. And yeah. my art isn't being instrumentalized by anyone. And sure. in some ways there's a real freedom in that. You know, I lived in Chicago and uh, for grad school, just briefly, from 99 to 2001. But what I really liked about Chicago was there wasn't this thriving commercial art market. It's bigger now, but it was really moribund. But it allowed for people to just do shows in their living room. And, right. and it wasn't about money. Right. Because no one was making money. Right, right. So it was right. much more about sharing and building community and expressing ideas, which is a hugely powerful and creative space to be in. Oh yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, that said, like if if anyone is going to keep making art after the age of 25 or yeah. something and yeah. wants to have a family if that's in the picture or whatever, then yeah, they got to find some other yeah, some way point. forward, right? Yeah. Paycheck. And I, you know, and to be yeah. and, and I know it seems like it's just talking about life lessons, but I actually <laughs> I think the basic relationship we have to how we make our money is a fundamental part of structuring how we see the world. Sure. And I don't, I, you know, and to, not to bring a little gravitas to it, you know, certainly that is not unrelated to Trump and and the situation we're in today, because people are really struggling, and 
Lord knows, you know, the paychecks that are out there, I, I don't know how people pay for health care and then also how they pay for rent and car loans and just the, the myriad of bills that come in the mailbox every month yeah. gets you depressed. Well, and a lot of them, yeah, that's right. And a lot of them don't. And that is why we have Trump, because they think that might, I think, because many of the people who voted for him think that he will fix that problem, which it seems very likely he will not, but no. uh, yeah. But it hasn't been fixed for a long time. Indeed, yeah, yeah. yeah. The people on both sides of the aisle have failed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's real. So okay, well, let's move on to the second part where we yeah. see what the surprise videos are. Oh, fun! Are. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm so these are for the audience. These are clips from Big Things archives. Um, I don't know what they are, and neither does NATO. And we are going to watch them and see. So this first one is, okay, uh, on topic. Trump versus Zuckerberg, who has contributed more to fake news? And this is Bernard-Henri Lévy, who, full disclosure, was on this podcast, although he didn't talk about this, French philosopher, activist guy. And, uh, and let's see what he has to say. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe, Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Anti-intellectualism means two things. Uh, hate of debate and hate of truth. This is the couple. Debate now, truth tomorrow. And this couple is what the anti-intellectualism of today hates most. So you have people today who defend fanatically some fake news. Instead of before, you had people fighting democratically for a remote truth. This anti-intellectualism was is something which which is coming from a long time, and it really paved the road in Europe and in America for the neo-populism. And Trump is not the author of that; he is a result of that. He is a result of this long anti-intellectualism, and in that, the social networks have, as you know, a big responsibility. And when when Mark Zuckerberg when he's questioned on that, when he says, I'm not an historian, I'm not here to make the police of the fake, it's a joke. He does not take the huge responsibility which life gave him. Without being an historian, he has. Facebook has, Twitter has a huge responsibility in not putting the fake and the news at the same level. I have so many reactions to that. <laughs> you know, I agreed with the first part, and I disagreed with the second part. So I certainly do think that um, the kind of anti-establishment situation we are in has a long history of that. And the anti-intellectualism has a huge history of that. You know, certainly we've seen that in the kind of relativism that people have managed to insert into climate change, for example. You talk about something right. that is so scientifically dug into, or the conversation around evolution. I mean, these are things some foundational principles of just thinking. Right. And certainly got a lot of backing in, in 
very rational people that have been managed, been able to be disrupted by lobbyists, in a sense. You right. know, certainly kind of strategically positioned scientists paid off to kind of destabilize these narratives, and then a concerted effort to destabilize those truth claims. There is a real effort, I would say, in the United States landscape I'm thinking of, but certainly in the, around the world, the destabilizing truth has a certain kind of pernicious element to it. Sure. That said, and then we can get into two, my, my okay. only cautionary tale on that is, I think there is a huge value in destabilizing truth simultaneously, because while the New York Times no longer owns the entire debate, on what all the news that's fit to print. Right. It used to be a truth. Right. Now it seems like a desperate <laughs> clinging on. But I think that um, simultaneously, the bandwidth of what is political discussion has grown. And so, you know, while fake news exists, so does a serious conversation around capitalism. And so does a serious sure. conversation around social movements. Whereas you used to, not that long ago, have a giant protest in New York and no newspaper reported on it. Right, right, you right. You know, and like fortunately Amy Goodman over at Democracy Now! would be out there reporting, but in general, the media outlets for people's kind of taking on yeah. the powers that be were very limited. No, that's right. And I mean, I was thinking about Facebook and Twitter and, you know, they're all sort of predicated on the idea that people should be able to kind of express their own thoughts and share the things that they want to. And there isn't any kind of central governing authority. And like, it's beneficial on the one hand, because it, you know, it, as you say, it opens up the space for voices that otherwise wouldn't get heard. But, you know, I admit to, like, there being a tiny little Alexander Hamilton in the back of my mind who's kind of like, there's got to be some, like, however out there your position is, there must be some, like, kind of rational trained, you know, uber mind, which is, of course, horrible to think. But, you know, that, that somehow keeps us from going completely off the rails. Sure, I mean, totally. like, I feel like I'm fine with art going completely off the rails, but facts, like, you know, I But, don't... I, you know, I mean, I think, <laughs> I hear you, but, you know, I think we don't want to get too hyperbolic about it. As much yeah, yeah. as, like, it's funny because after Trump got elected, everyone was like, oh, my God, America, you were so crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. But first of all, Trump didn't win the election in a popular way. Right. Simultaneously, I do know, you know, just to not get into Trump, but it's, like, so important. Like, there was a huge fight within the Democratic Party. Right. And that is not small. No. And I, in some ways, I think a rational discussion was happening in this election, and some real fighting occurred in a time where people are desperate for change. And I think Trump had a real, a real mobilized movement of change on his side, the yeah. tailwinds of change, that simply the Democrats did not have after eight years of... Obama. And I'm not to, that is not unrelated to this thing yep. about fake news because I don't think fake news is our problem. Right. You know what I mean? I, I do think, I mean, just to say, to go to um, our esteemed gentleman's uh, position, <laughs> I do think it bear, you need to talk about political economy when it comes to truth. And right. you do, just to go to our previous discussion, you have to talk about the fact that people are so broke. If the truth isn't paying your bills, and right. if your truth leads you to not have health care, and if your truth had your significant others like not able to take care of them, who needs the truth? You know, I feel like yeah, yeah. the truth is valuable if we're helping each other out in a society. Yeah, but and when it, the truth is there just to destroy you, at right. some point you don't give a shit. Right, right. And like <laughs> and when newspapers yeah, and I mean I'm a big fan overall of the New York Times, yeah. but I have to say that like it did serve a function 
in this past election that I was, you know, very, that was very apparent to me as guardian of the status quo of the Democratic Party. You know, I mean, it, I mean, certainly it reported on Sanders and stuff, but everything was very, like he was marginalized from the beginning. The movement was sort of a fringe, loony movement, the way it was presented, you know, as opposed to a genuine critique of, of the Democratic Party, of our current economic reality, etc. I mean, to spell it out too, I mean, there is a real confronting of capitalism that's happening. Right. And frankly, you know, that is something that media outlets have to contend with. And the big ones have often been progressive centrists if not kind of economically conservative. Yeah. And so there is a real problem they have with truth <laughs> yeah, when it yeah. comes to that. Well, you know, revolution is scary, especially if you don't know sort of what's on the other end of it, right? Sure. I mean, people are, you know, there the, are a lot, of, a lot of people have a vested interest in not having the entire system of capitalism overthrown with no clear cut But I don't even think, like, we're talking, you know, it's so funny, it's like, it's not even overthrowing, I'm talking about, like, decent j wages. Right. You know, like, decent wages where someone can actually pay the bills, and they know that when they sick, get, get sure. sick, they're taken care of. Sure. And they know when they put their kid in sure. school, they're getting a good education. Sure. Or, or, or ideas like, let's not have Wall Street completely entrenched in American politics, or what about, you know, the idea of a universal minimum income kind of yeah. thing, like these sorts of things. Just simple things. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not talking like, we've got to burn it all down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think that because that conversation can't happen to get to conversation truth, you start not trusting those that are the arbiters of truth when it seems to only work out for them. Yeah. And I think that that feeds anti-establishment thinking, in general. <sighs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and to say on a different level, which is not even about capitalism, Social media is a force in and of itself that is very different. You know, historically, if you look at the radio or television or today, social media, these phenomena have always become massive galvanizing forces. Right. And we are in the midst, you know, the Web 2.0 era is hitting us full on right now. Right. And you, know, you saw what beginning social media did in the Arab Spring, and you know, certainly I'm not one to judge because people say, look what the, you know, the Syrian conflict and the, what's happened in Egypt. Certainly there's like all kinds of like disastrous results. <laughs> right. But it was a very, just to say, to be sympathetic to it, there right. was a real reaching out and a profoundly destabilizing moment. And I think we're having that here too. Yeah, I think it's easy. I mean, it's certainly easy for me sometimes when I get caught up in the kind of Orwellian landscape that I feel we live in sometimes to ignore all of the powerful ways in which people are able to use these tools to change their lives. You know? It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. And also just we have to remind ourselves, you know, we all look out. I mean, I'm in Manhattan, so like we walk around, all these people are walking to us with their cell phones. Right. And we all kind of say like, you know, we all know it's something's, something's up. Right. But something's up inside us. And we're all changing together. Mm -hmm. And it's weird. And... Like, it's happening so fast, we don't even, we can't put our finger on it, you know? But we're thinking differently, and we're communicating differently. So we're going to act differently. We're mutating, man. We're a mutating civilization that's right now. That's right, that's right. And I mean, it's only going to keep happening, especially once AI become, and virtual reality become, you know, more ubiquitous and yeah. powerful. And we don't understand the ways, and it's not easy, like, to go back to your book, it's not easy to just kind of make blanket statements and say, 
oh, look at everybody staring at their cell phones, we're all a bunch of sheeple, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's not really capturing what's going on. Like, I totally agree. And you know, it's so funny, so Noam Chomsky, who I love, yeah. has this book, Manufactured Consent, but I never liked that phrase because I always thought, it makes it seem like there's this puppet master. Right. And frankly, from what I can tell, no one knows what the hell is going on. <laughs> yeah. Certainly Mark Zuckerberg might have improved on MySpace, but like, who's kidding who? Do you think he understands what all these interconnected things are doing to people? No one does. Just because you build a hammer doesn't mean you know how people are going to use it. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and, just, and we're the there. publishers. We're complicit. Yeah. Like every second, whatever we do is what's de de determining this reality. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like, I just never like that idea like there's this great, like there's a wizard behind the curtain and we're going to be like, aha, right. you're pulling the strings. Yeah, no, I mean, I think what makes people paranoid is like, you know, the fact that there are indeed behind the curtain tons of companies buying up the data to advertise stuff back to us based on what they think we oh, are. that's all based real. On, you know, well, yeah, but I mean, the reality of yeah. the fact that we don't see all of that happening, I think that brings in some legitimate puppet master fears, like, how am I being manipulated? Sure. I'm like the first to say, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Right. And like, <laughs> like, I know, I mean, we know, you know, this Edward Snowden phenomena is so germane to our society, which is not only is Edward Snowden calling out the NSA, but further, like we need it, proves that they're out to get us. You know, right. like, like that's right, right. what we need to know. Yeah, yeah. You're like, oh God, they are out to get us. We need <laughs> us. Like, they really are. Yeah, yeah. And I just feel like, you know, certainly as a society, we are desperately fatigued with paranoia. And um, I play a lot of video games. Mm -hmm. And I'm very aware that every video game protagonist is like, in I'm like, almost, almost every video game I play, like, the protagonist is just, everyone's out to get you. You know, and everyone turns on you. And you're this, like, kind of almost like a libertarian anarcho guy. Right. Who's just like, I just, I only got myself in this wilderness of the world. Right. But that feels like how a lot of people see their lives. Right. But you were saying people are fatigued of that, like, in the day-to-day, -day, like, since you don't literally have a gun or, yeah, no, right. or <laughs> a series of, you know, video game <laughs> developmental challenges to overcome. Like, you're just kind of like... Okay, yeah, that's the case. Like, sort of like that um, Leonard Cohen song, you know, everybody knows the dice is loaded, everybody knows the, the you know, war died. is over and the bad guys won. Or the they were playing that so much when he died. And yeah. Yeah, it was just, you know, it was under the Trump mood. Uh, ouch. And I just yeah. thought, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Leonard Cohen bringing it home. Seriously. All right, so let's see what the next one is, cool. shall we? All right, cool. So this is, oh, this will be different. Stephen Kotler. And he is an author, journalist, and entrepreneur. And he's, uh, it's called Download Your Mind Into Another Body. To No Longer Die Changes Everything. In the face of immortality, morality is going to radically change, right? We've evolved to die. Like, if for the entire history of life on this planet, life has come to an end. There is nothing in our consciousness, there's nothing, period, out there that says, this is how you behave if you live forever. This is how you start to structure a society if I can store my personality on a computer. The idea in mind uploading is that we can store ourselves on silicon. We can upload our personalities, our brains, some part of our consciousness onto computers, and they can stay around forever. It is a far out there technology, for sure. Even though British Telecom was working on it, even though people are working on it, 
It's very early days. Ray Kurzweil has famously kind of pegged the date when we're going to have to deal with this problem is 2045. That may be really, really enthusiastic. I think it's a conservative prediction. But the point is, at some point in this century, this is probably going to get real. And you got to stop and you got to go for you know, all five of the world's major religions, just, just start there. Use the threat of the hereafter, right? What's going to happen after this life to steer morality and shape behavior. So what happens to theological morality in the face of technological immortality is the big kind of metaphysical question. If you look at the science fiction work of Richard K. Morgan, who's fantastic, he talks about what happens when consciousness becomes downloadable and bodies become expendable and what that means for soldiers and armies and mercenaries and things along those lines. So there's really like a gritty cyberpunk underbelly to the mind uploading technology, even though it's being developed for educational purposes. So we could preserve the brains of the Einsteins and the Beethovens and the Richard Feynmans of the world and really kind of get inside them. But it's sort of like, I think of it like television, right? When they created television, they thought it was going to be used for educational purposes. That was the only, that's the creator of TV. What do you think this will be good for? Well, education, of course. 50 years later, there's not much education. There's a whole lot of crap. And I think we could see the same thing with mind uploading. So do you want to smoke some marijuana and talk about that one? Uh, yeah, I don't, I, I feel like, I Let's feel like I've it. already smoked the marijuana just watching it. Yeah, no, man. Let's, uh, let's talk about immortality, NATO. Do you, I, I, I will say just off the bat that I just hate the idea of living forever. I just, I hate it. Oh, I, you do? Oh, I hate it. Oh, why? So unlike my nine-year-old son who's always promising me that when he, like, he hates death and yeah. when, he's gonna, when he grows up, he's going to cure death and, yeah. like, find the secret to immortality. I mean, it's true for everyone, right? But certainly for me, my life and identity is bound up with the idea that it's finite. Yeah. I mean, I find that, first of all, an extremely motivating force when I consider getting up in the morning, you know, yeah, and like, what true. am I going to do with my day? True. Vampires are probably pretty lazy. <laughs> <laughs> first of all, if you, were, if you were uploaded into a computer, you wouldn't have the problem of um, making money. So you wouldn't have to figure that out every day. True. <laughs> so I don't want to get all theoretical, but, you know, I was just some basic things to that. One is certainly my gut is... I secretly don't really believe in the individual, uh -huh. you know, and I think like certainly the thing that makes us an individual in a very basic level is that we have a body. So I, I do think the idea of if you took what you think is consciousness, quote unquote, and put it on a chip or something, uh -huh. you would in many ways be forced to reckon with something much more complex about what constitutes an us. Huh. And that dissolution, I think, That's is interesting. super interesting um, because we are, I mean, certainly any kind of psychoanalyst that goes deep or something can get into it, but the way we even constitute who we are is very elusive. And I think that what our friend here is talking about misleads the giant traumatic shift to realizing that what you thought you are. Yeah. Is not that at all. Yeah, yeah. And we are a lot of collections of a lot of different That's things. That's interesting. So, who knows, man? I mean, frankly, I just like weird stuff. Mm -hmm. So, if the option was there to get on the chip, I'd jump on the chip. You'd probably do it. I'd jump on the chip. NATO 2.0. Why not? Yeah. You know, I'd get on the chip. But, you know, which version of me, too? Because, certainly... Uh, well, I mean, you would so you'd get on the chip. Like, what if that meant you were going to live, live consciously forever... 
that turned out to be a horrific thing. Like, you don't know. Or what if they kept downloading me every second? <laughs> and then I got every second of my life in a version of that. And there's like millions of me. <laughs> and then the millions of me produced a tribe. Uh, I mean, I agree. It's super interesting. I mean, I, I guess... So I want to go back to something you said, which I found interesting. I don't mind getting yeah. theoretical at all. No. Let's totally get yeah. theoretical. You know, that, that much of what we are or, or what our identity is is based on the bodies that we have. I'm going to, like, agree and disagree. I mean, I could see where, and, and maybe I misunderstood you, and you yeah. can, like, make it more complex. Like, I look in the mirror, my face is me, right? There's this idea of, like, I'm this guy, I'm medium height, you know, I kind of walk, like, the way I walk, and, you know, all of that, my relationship to gravity, etc. And I guess my experiences of pain and pleasure from my body. But, I mean, the brain, my brain, right, has certain genetic components, and it's also got memory, which isn't all physical. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like a lot of my memories are about my conversations and my relationships, which may have a physical component but aren't necessarily rooted in the body per se. Sure, although, you know, I was thinking too, because we certainly, our memories are also wrapped up with our body. And it's weird too, because we don't know how bodily our brains are. Sure. You know, like we think of ourselves as predominantly visual. Right. With some kind of, you know, some sort of atrophied physical relationships to the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But certainly I would say that... Um, Especially artists who are often terrible at sports. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, most of us who sit in front of computers, too. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was thinking, like, we just... I meant more that because there's a one form. When you look in the mirror, there's still one body. You know what I mean? And right. if you didn't have that, if you just had this, like, series of memories and associative relationships to images, it would... It could radically... <laughs> shift the kind of understanding of self and you know I don't you know it's a linguistic thing but I studied Wittgenstein in, in school and oh, okay you know he did something to my head which was like in some ways he got me over my fear of death in so much as I thought you can't die if you were never alive right and like you can't die if you can't like you can't make someone live forever if you can't even prove they're alive and to be simple about that is like by the time we're on a chip mm-hmm Whatever's on that chip is not what, it's, then it's just facts, which is fine. Right. But it's not life as we think of it. Sure. I mean, the fundamental understanding of what life is would have to shift profoundly, which I think is what he's hinting at. Yeah. But yeah, we well, would have to be like, I mean, I saw this thing was like saying like, maybe we're all, it's proven, it's so funny. Scientists are funny because they prove things very fast. Like they're like, but some guys, it was like one of these sci-fi scientist guys, he's like, it's proven that we're probably in a simulation produced by artificial intelligence right now. And I was like, I that know was this broken. hypothesis. Yeah, <laughs> and, like, and, and that and that's that, happening right now. That scientist is wrong. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 that's from Nick Bostrom. He's an Oxford philosopher, yeah. and it's certainly not proven. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that just feels very of this moment. <laughs> it's proven. <laughs> I mean, it's it's proven that it stands to reason that we can't prove whether or not that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. The the thing that would be interesting about having your consciousness uploaded is that is is your relationship to memory because a lot of like what we are and a lot of I think how art functions at least from my perspective is about the the weird slippery relationship that we have with memory and and identity is about constantly kind of 
digesting slippery memories and you know, repurposing them and so on. Well, you know, it's interesting because we can get into VR too. I was thinking about yeah, this, yeah. which was like, because VR is certainly an opportunity. And we're always seeing it with like um, avatars and stuff online. Yeah. But VR will heighten this a lot, which is our relationship to our bodies. And I've often thought that what's coming in the future is um, people are going to start trading bodies. Right. And also being able to trade personalities mm. or being, you know, like, like, let me, you know, for example, if I had a VR thing and I'm like, hey, can I borrow your body mm. and you walk around and be me? Right. And I'll borrow your body and you can go and do this. Like, you just switch. And I think certainly there is a certain slippage or openness that we can shift consciousness and bodies a little bit. Right. And our relationship to the self will shift as it becomes clear that we're much more mutable people than we thought. Right. And that identity, and we already see it, like the idea of identity and gender, the fluidness, like that is radically opening up in terms of what's possible. Sure. You know, I mean, you talked to a person a hundred years ago about gender fluid. Right. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? Right, but real, like when virtual reality is really working effectively, we'll, we'll be able to slip on another gender, another race. You know, and it sort of whatever that will mean. And it won't mean. seem so weird. Yeah, it yeah. won't seem so weird. You just be like, huh, la la. And I don't mean that like it changes the world profoundly, but it gets you more adept to noticing that these things are fluid. Right. Yeah. I mean, I also don't want to exaggerate and suggest that suddenly I'm going to have the lived experience of a black man of my age. Of course. I mean, obviously not, not. But yeah. 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 But I do think it's a, it's it's like training wheels towards like weird ability to understand that you aren't necessarily you. Yeah. And then also are kind of hardened. I mean, in some ways, too, people think like uh, that's another kind of shift, of course, is like capitalism is in and cultural machines are very related. This kind of switches to the book a little right, bit. Right, right. Sure. That it speeds up our desire to mutate, you know, that we and that certainly there are parts of the world that do not want to move at that speed. And they're terrified of that, you know, and, you know, they see family structures dissolving, also gender roles dissolving, yeah. that freaks people out, right. you know? I mean, and just to say, sexual paranoia is real paranoia. Right, right, <laughs> right, 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 yeah. That strikes deep on people, you know? And I and to be sympathetic, man, like, the world can feel very destabilizing, and when everything you hold to be true, Lord knows, gender is one of them. Yeah. You know, I think that that can be a very destabilizing force. Yeah, I think, I mean, going back to what you were saying about like inherent racism, I think like in, in different and varying ways, like humans are pretty conservative and it's often a function of age, but it can, you know, also be, I guess, what community you're in and so on. But, but I think that like we like to know what the borders of our reality are and whether we are comfortable with those borders having fluid gender identity in them or not like we want to know what those b borders are and we're always kind of you know why is it that when people get older they tend to get more racist <laughs> because i also feel like at some point in the human mind i mean i can't prove it, this is just gut yeah, yeah. i feel like to go to your point i feel like some po some point people like to have the house in order yeah and they're like these this is the game plan this right. is the way the world works and it's no time to overturn the apple cart yeah, or at least like, yeah, here are the basic things <laughs> that have to be in place, otherwise things are really going to be fucked up sort of thing. Yeah. And, and yeah, and that's different for different people in different societies. And I agree, and I think, I think there is something wrong with us when we're sort of scornful and dismissive of, I mean, these become battles, yeah. like they become culture wars, but, yeah. 
when we're just like, oh, those idiots over there aren't cool with my identity or whatever. Yeah. Like, like I think, as you say, it's also deep. It's complex for people, you know? Yeah, and I know that, like, people say it's the, you know, certainly the, the dying breath of the white male. And certainly there's a lot of truth to that, you know? Men losing their place yeah, yeah. in the world. But I, in, in a strange way, too, I'm interested in, like, what does it, you, you know, what... <laughs> What are the ramifications of men in America not feeling like men anymore? Mm. I say this as dude who's pretty like chill, but I just think about that in a, in a less like judgmental yeah. way, but just like, you know, men, for example, are not as powerful in the workplace anymore. Like, right. in terms of just working class identity, the working class is not as powerful as it used to be. Yeah, yeah. And also the traditional role of a man in society is not what it once was. And so certainly there's going to be a lot of anxiety about that. And where that anxiety goes, I think, is, is an important question to think about that. Because certainly it's obviously channeled to Trump right now, but it can channel in many ways, I think. But anxiety opened up is something to contend with. That's right. That's right. Well, um, Nato Thompson, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. And uh, this was a really fascinating conversation. And Nato's book is called Culture as Weapon, The Art of Influence in Everyday Life. And it's been really great talking to you. Thanks. So My much. total pleasure. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. That wraps up our show for this week on Think Again. Um, I want to let people know that uh, I really appreciate it when you're able to take a moment to just go to iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen and rate or review the show. I got an email this week from a person who loves the show, a scientist, and had a wonderful email exchange with him. He was finding it difficult to rate the show on his iPhone. Uh, I don't think the iPod app makes that very easy. You kind of have to do it on a desktop. But anyway, that technical difficulty led to a lovely conversation and, and he turned me on to some things to read on the web that were really interesting. So either please rate and review the show or if you're having difficulty with it, send me an email, jason at bigthink.com. I'd love to hear from you. We'll be back next week with another unexpected conversation, and I hope that you can be here then too.